You're listening to the sermon audio for English Ministries at Tri-City Chinese Christian Church. We meet on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. at the Kyle Center in Port Moody, British Columbia. All right, so this morning we are starting our series, uh, which is uh, the story of God is what I'm calling it. So we're going to go from uh, Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 20. One, I think it's the end. I didn't look that up at the end, but I'm pretty sure it's Revelation 21. And we're going to look at the overarching narrative uh, of the story as we go through this. And this will take us to um, right up to Easter. So it was perfectly uh, sequenced for that. Uh, and so we're going to look at the story of creation this morning. So if you want to follow along somewhat in your Bibles, Genesis 1, very first book, very first chapter. Um, but I'm going to read through kind of, well, not kind of. It is a rewrite that I have done uh, myself in this, and so it's not going to follow exactly what Genesis 1 says. It'll follow the order and everything uh, as a structure, but it's not going to say it exactly word for word. So your options is you can kind of follow loosely through your scripture. You can just close your eyes and listen and imagine the images that are coming up, or I have a um, images that will come up on the, the screen as well that you can look at and reflect. So there's a few different ways in which you can kind of place yourself in the story as we get it in today. So we're going to look at the story of creation, mostly Genesis 1, with little touches of Genesis 2 in there as well. So, in the beginning, God saw that there was a problem. The earth was formless, it was empty, dark, and made up of the chaotic waters. As his spirit hovered over the waters, he decided to set about fixing the problem. God said, let there be light. And so there was light, sending the darkness in retreat. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. When the light shone over the earth, he called it day, and when darkness enveloped the earth, he called it night. There is evening and then morning, the end of the first day. God said, let there be a barrier to separate the waters above from the waters below. So God made a barrier that separated the two. God called this barrier sky. There was evening and then morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky be separated into their own places. And it was so. As the waters under the sky rushed into their appointed places, dry ground began to appear. The groupings of water God called seas, and the dry ground he called land. And God continued his work, saying, Let the ground produce vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kinds. And it was so. Ferns and bushes grew up from the sky, or from the ground. Trees sprouted and reached for the sky. Fruits grew upon trees and bushes sweet and ripe, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and then the morning, the third day. God said, let there be lights in the sky that can separate the day from the night. They will be markers of seasons and days and years. Let them shine light on the earth. And it was so. Two great lights were made, one to govern the day, which God called sun, and one lesser to govern the night, which God called moon. 
He also made stars that sparkled throughout the night sky. God set all these lights in the sky to govern the day and the night, and he saw that it was good. There is evening and then morning the fourth day. God said, let the waters be filled with living creatures and let the sky be filled with birds to fly across the earth. I mixed up my two slides there. There we go. So God created fish that teemed in the sea and the great sea creatures, whales, dolphins, sharks, all these creatures according to their kind. And God created birds to fly through the sky, a rainbow of colors and a cacophony of songs, each according to their kind. And God saw that it was good, and he blessed the creatures, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the water and the seas and the skies across the earth. There is evening and then morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land be filled with living creatures according to their kind. So God created creatures to dwell upon the land, livestock and wild animals, reptiles, apes, mammals, each according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and the animals on the land. So God stooped down into the dirt of the earth, and out of it molded a human. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he came alive. But he saw that it was not quite good yet. He realized that it was not good for this man to be alone, and so he created a suitable helper for him, woman. He created them in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and care for it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and the creatures on the ground. I have given you plants with their fruits and their seeds to nourish you with food. I have organized the waters for you to drink of it. God saw all that he had created and he saw that it was very, very good. There was evening and then morning, the sixth day. And with his work on the heavens and the earth's creation finished, God took the seventh day to rest. And in so doing, he could declare the seventh day holy because on that day he rested from all the work he had done. So there's been a lot of discussion and arguments about how to interpret the creation story. There has really been kind of three main arguments about how to view this story. Two dominant ones that really focus on how to interpret that day part of it specifically, and a third one that looks more at the genre of it. And I'm sure in apologetics talks that you've probably had in the past, you've talked about uh, at least these two dominant views. I think Tyler probably mentioned this third one, so we're not going to go super in-depth on them, but we'll touch on them a little bit here. So the verse view is the uh, young earth view. And this is the most literal interpretation of the passage. Each day is exactly a 24-hour period, and God creates everything just as it is said in the passage. So the strength, uh, uh, strengths of this argument is it's the simplest reading. You just read it, and that's what it says, and that is what happened. Uh, so it's a very simple uh, way to read it. Uh, and it does take Scripture seriously in, in its interpretation. It's taking it at face value. What Scripture says is what is happening. 
the weaknesses or the problems with this argument is that it has to fight with what science says. So in the young Earth view, they will typically hold that the Earth is hundreds of thousands of years old, whereas our science says it's billions of years old. So it has to kind of contend a little bit in that realm as well. There's also a problem with the order of creation a little bit. So you have day one that light comes, but the sun doesn't come uh, until day three or day, day four. So what is the light uh, for those first few days? Uh, and then there's also the fact that um, plants are created on day three, but the sun's not created till day four. So how do the plants grow um, without the sun? And obviously you can argue that God is sustaining these things and God is the light itself is one way that they'll go about going those. The other um, thing is if you're taking it uh, literally in face value, there's actually the main creation narrative in Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 kind of redoes a little bit of the creation narrative. And the creation order is actually different in the two. In Genesis 1, plants are created, then animals, then humanity. But in Genesis 2, humanity is actually created and then plants and then animals. And so that is something that you have to come up with an answer for in that view. Uh, so that's young earth view. The other one that looks at that kind of day period is the old earth view. So opposite of young earth in a way. It views each day as an age. So when it says day, it means age, which is a much longer kind of loose period of time that can be hundreds of years, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years in between each of those. So the strength of the argument is it takes both science and scripture seriously. So the earth being billions of years old can fit in that view. Even the theory of evolution can fit in that view. God could have taken his time in creating humanity and or creatures and everything through those ages. So it kind of solves that problem of science. Uh, but it's still taking scripture pretty much at its face value. God created all these things as he said he created them uh, and probably in that order as well. And so again, it's also a very simple, uh, fairly simple reading as well, which is a strength to it as well. It's just that day is interpreted a little bit different, but everything else is taken pretty much at face value. The weaknesses, however, is it does um, still have that, those differences between Genesis 1 and 2 that it has to contend with, but it really exaggerates the problem of creation order. So now you have the sun created in age 3, and then, or sorry, plants created in age 3, and then perhaps hundreds of thousands or millions of years later, the sun comes onto the scene. So how do the plants live for hundreds of thousands or hundreds or millions of years during that time? So that's an answer that has to come to this view. The third view, which hasn't, doesn't get shared as much in it, but the one in which I kind of presented the story through this view's lens, is called the literary framework view. Not nearly as catchy of a name as the other two, but there it is. Um, and it's looking at the creation story and saying, this creation story in Genesis 1 is poetry. And so it's looking at the genre and recognizing that it's written poetry, so it's probably very highly symbolic. You don't read poetry uh, quite literally. And so it's saying that the purpose of the story isn't so much uh, saying how God created the world, um, but wants to tell us something about God. And so the strength of this view is it doesn't have to contend with science because it's not saying this, the account is trying to tell you scientifically how the world came to be. Um, and it also takes scripture seriously in that it acknowledges the genre. It acknowledges 
how the author decided to write the story and the particular reason why it, the author chose to write it as poetry. The weakness is it's not the simplest reading, it's the more complex reading. Um, so it, you can't just quite take things at face value, you have to take in cultural context and all this other extra work that has to go into it, which makes it a little bit of a weakness. And there can be lots of misinterpretations that can be put in there as well, so it's not the most clear. But out of the three, uh, this is the one that I've kind of landed on, and so that's why I've taken the interpretation of the story and the framework in which I'm going to talk about it here. Uh, but as I do that, I do want to also acknowledge that people who hold young earth and people who hold old earth are still Christians. They're not heretics in my eyes. They're both trying to be faithful to the scriptures and interpret it through that lens. Um, and so both those arguments can also be argued for from a biblical standpoint. So I'm just saying this is the one that I land, not necessarily the most superior. Feel free to disagree with me, but this is the lens that I'm going through here. And I'll be upfront about that as we do this. So this interpretation literary framework is saying that the story is trying to tell us something about God rather than how creation came to be. So what is the story trying to tell us about God? So as we look through the story, it begins by setting up a problem. And the problem is that the earth is formless, it's empty, it's dark, and it's chaotic. So formless is a problem because we prefer our earth to have some sort of form on it so that we can live on it. Empty is a problem because it means there's no life on it. It's desolate and we're living things, so we want to be alive on it and we want to have life on it. So emptiness is a problem. Uh, darkness is a fairly sim uh, familiar symbol to us of evil. We attribute darkness with evil and it's a similar idea here. But the one of waters is probably not as familiar of a symbol to us. But water in ancient times is the ultimate symbol for chaos. You can't control the sea, and so that's how it becomes the ultimate representation of chaos. You can do your best to predict kind of what the weather is going to be like and how the sea is going to be and choose to sail during those times. And again, it's harder in the ancient world because they don't have their meteorologists or ways to predict the weather patterns, so they're doing their best by looking at the sky. So you can try to choose the best time to sail on it, but out of nowhere a storm can come up and all of a sudden you're being tossed to and fro on the chaotic waves and you can see how chaos is in its representation through here. So this is the problem with the earth before God gets to work. It's formless, it's empty, it's dark, and it's chaotic. So now having set up the problem, the story goes to show how God goes about fixing the problem. Day one, let there be light. So right away he comes and he solves the problem of darkness. There is light. And he separates the two into day and night. Darkness has been kept at bay or at least organized into its part of creation. So the problem of darkness is solved. Day two, God separates the waters above from the waters below. And again, this is where we need some of that ancient context of how they viewed the earth. So first, they view the earth as flat. Not round, like most of us view the earth today, but it's flat. And somehow water is falling from the sky. And so their explanation for that is there's obviously a great lake in the sky. Um, and so God creates this barrier, which actually there's a lake above the earth. And the barrier is the sky, which he keeps the waters above at bay. And they have little windows in it that lets it rain whenever God 
decides to open the window to let it rain. That's how the ancient world views. There's a great big sky lake that's kept at bay by the sky. The sky is this force field. And so here we have God starting to work on that problem of chaos by bringing order to the chaos of the waters, separating the sky above and the sky below. The other fun note with this one is this is the only day where it records that doesn't record God saying that it was good. Jewish calendar starts on Sunday. This is day two. It's Monday. So it's biblical. Even God sees Mondays are no good. Day three. God create, uh, organizes the waters below to, and creates vegetation. So first he brings further order to chaos by organizes now the waters into oceans and lakes and rivers and seas and the like. And as he does so, dry land starts to appear on the earth. And so this dry land now gives form to the earth. So with that, he has solved the problem of formlessness. And now that the waters are organized into the lake in the sky and the lake on the earth, and then all those lakes on the earth are separated into their places, he has now solved the problem of chaos by bringing order to it and limiting it where it can be. So now the only problem that remains is emptiness. And now with all this dry land and form, the earth seems really, really empty. And so he starts getting to work at it by putting plants and vegetation on the dry land. And now these next three days, he's going to work at solving that problem of emptiness. Day four, he solves the emptiness in this sky that he has made now by filling it with lights. And so again, further looking at the ancient view, this is how they viewed the earth. So you have, I realize that this laser kind of works when Pastor Will used it, so now I can use it. So heaven is the dwelling place of God. He's up there. These are the great waters above the firmament, or fancy word for sky. And then this little line here is the barrier, which is the sky that God has now put to keep the waters at bay. And you got your little windows to let it rain down on the earth. Um, and so now he has filled the stars and the sun and the moon all sit in this force field that God has created because they've never been to space. They don't know any idea of what space is. It's just the heaven is a total different realm where God dwells. So as far as they know, this sky is an impenetrable barrier. There's no way that you can get through it because that's how it's keeping the waters above at bay. And so the lights, all the stars and the sun and the moon sit right in there. So he's filled the sky with the lights. Uh, and then he also, with the moon and the sun, brings a little bit more um, order to light and dark by having the sun bring light during the day and the moon keep the darkness somewhat at bay during um, night. Day five, God continues to tackle the problem of emptiness. This time he fills the waters below with fish and the sky with birds, uh, and he blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And in that way, the waters and the sky will continually be filled with these living creatures. And so he's now solved the problem of emptiness in the sky and the waters. And then he comes to day six, and he finally finishes solving the problem of emptiness by putting creatures across the dry land. And um, then he tops off his creation with humanity whom he makes in his own image. And by this image, he means that they are giving authority over the earth, similar to how God has authority over the universe. They're created in his image because they are to rule and have dominion over the earth as God's representatives. 
And then day seven, God rests from his work because he's solved all the problems. His work has finished. He solved the problems of formlessness and emptiness and darkness and chaos. And it happens on the seventh day because seven in the Jewish symbols of and numerology, seven is the perfect number. It represents completion. So on the seventh day, everything is complete. Though that symbol probably comes from the fact that God does it in seven days. So God solved these problems. What, by solving these problems, what does it say about God? What is this inter- interpretation saying that Genesis is saying about God? Ultimately, it's saying that God is king and he is in control. He's king by the fact that not only that he's created everything, but also he's ordered and structured a formless, empty, dark, and chaotic earth. And in their Jewish minds, God is in ultimate control because he is ultimately the only one who can bring order to chaos. He is the only one who can take the waters and separate them from above and below. He's the only ones who can take the waters below and make them into lakes and rivers. He's the only one that can have that kind of control. Only God can tame the waters. And when we see that as a focus of the Jewish people in this story, we start to see some new perspective on some of the things that Jesus does in the Gospels. And we see it first in Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So understanding how the sea is the ultimate symbol of chaos explains these exclamations and the response of the disciples at the end of the journey. What kind of man can have the same power as God and bring order to the stormy and chaotic sea? And we see it again in Matthew uh, 14, which I don't have written up there because it's a little bit longer, but oh, I'm getting all my pictures mixed up. Uh, that's to be as God as king. This is for uh, this story in Matthew 14. Uh, After he feeds the uh, the 5,000, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. And Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So again, we see how they start to begin to worship Jesus and declare him as the Son of God in this story because he has walked upon the waters. Only God could bring such order to chaos that he can easily walk 
upon choppy waters in the middle of the storm as if he's just on a pleasant spring stroll. And so the creation story shows God is king and in ultimate control because of his ability to create, but also because of his ability to bring order to chaos. And Jesus demonstrates himself as God by bringing order to chaos, by calming the the seas and walking upon their chaotic waters. So that's ultimately what the story is saying about God. But the story also has something to say about us. Throughout the creation story, God speaks, and the thing that he speaks about comes into being. But in Genesis 2, the creation account has God actually coming and using his hands and fashioning humanity out of the dust of the earth and breathing intimately life into them. And with humanity, there's both an identifying with the rest of the creatures that he's made and that he gives them humanity the same blessing he gives the creatures, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But there's also a difference in that they're made in God's image. And the image of God practically outworks itself in the fact that they are to have dominion over the rest of creation. So God is king, and by making humanity in his image, he gives them the capacity to rule over what he's created. And to truly do this in his image is to lovingly care for creation, since God saw creation as very good and loves what he created. And dominion and ruling over nowadays has connotations of domineering and exploiting. Um, But that's not what God is commissioning humanity to do. They are to be as God, delighting in the beauty of creation, tending creation alongside him, and helping it, him, helping it all thrive. So the story of creation calls us to worship the God who can bring order to chaos. The God who loves us so deeply that he created the world in order to pour out his love upon us. It calls us to recognize him as our king and to follow him. And in so doing, we seek to rule over creation on his behalf, caring for it and seeking to see it thrive. And we see that God loves us so deeply that he made us in his image. And we recognize that others too have been made in his image. And by seeing them in God's image, we seek to see them thrive as well. And this is the original plan of creation, but as we know, it doesn't last And that's what we're going to look at next week.